Thanks for coming on out. I'm going to talk about Catholic social teaching and how it's put into practice in the Holy See's diplomatic uh, service. A lot of the times when we think about diplomacy, we have bad impressions that a whole bunch of compromisers who don't stand on principle have caviar and champagne and cause rather than fix trouble in the world. We've got a lot of good people who work in diplomacy. A lot of the times they don't get credit, especially in areas where peacemaking has to be done uh, outside of the limelight because of the personalities, especially political dictators and things that are involved. That's what happens across the world. There are basically two types of diplomacy. One we would call bilateral diplomacy, one-on-one. -on -one. For example, when an ambassador is sent to a particular country. And then there's multilateral diplomacy in which various countries are there at the same time. The UN is the foremost multilateral diplomatic setting. And the United Nations has various major campuses across the world. New York is its headquarters, but there are also campuses in Geneva, Vienna, Nairobi, and then offices all over the world. Um, and so the Holy See will interact at each of those offices. I'm going to be talking mainly about what we're doing in New York, but it, in order to get there, I want to give you a little bit of Holy See diplomacy, its biblical roots, as well as its historical roots, and then we'll start to cover some of the issues that we're doing at the United Nations now, which I hope will provoke a lot of questions about why the church handles subject A in this particular way and what's the prudence behind it, 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 it that we see it. But biblical ground. There are a few images that Jesus uses that talks about the work of Christians in the middle of the world. We're living in an age, probably some of you have read Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. I don't think that that's really faithful to what Jesus gives us in the gospel. I don't want to ca caricature what Rod does, but we go out into the world. First image was salt. Jesus said, not you're the salt of the church, you're the salt of the earth. And there are three purposes of salt in the time of the Bible. You probably know at least one, we still have it today, adds flavor. We're supposed to lift the world up especially by the way we live with joy. Second, you can foresee, which was the great preservative in the ancient world. We didn't have refrigeration, and so fish or meat, you'd salt it so that it wouldn't um, corrode. Third, is still used in a lot of developing countries. It's a little bit gross, but you mix salt with dung, and you light it on fire. And so it serves as charcoal pellets. It's not the greatest thing to breathe, in these houses, which is why when it's used, average lifespan is about 37 years. But it's still used, so what do we have there? First, we're supposed to add flavor. Second, we're supposed to prevent corrosion, culturally, socially, etc. Third, we're supposed to be a fire starter when we're going out. And we can even be mixed with the detritus of the globe and still light that on fire. That's what Jesus is saying, and the people would have heard when he talked about being the salt of the earth. We're going out. Light of the world. Two main purposes of light. One is to uh, show the way so that we can see clearly. So we're supposed to bring the truth out to illumine people's minds. Second 
purpose of light warms when we're in the sun, when we're close to a fire. Even sometimes light bulbs and things like this, they can um, increase the temperature in a room depending upon how they are. We are meant to take the light of the truth outside and we're also supposed to bring that love in the world. Jesus uses light of the world pushing us outward. Third image is leaven. Little pinch of yeast is able to bring up the whole dough. One Christian on a street or in a school or in a hospital wing is supposed to be able to make a difference. Not necessarily overturn everything, but start to lift some people up. Jesus wants us to have that type of influence in the middle of the world. Jesus likewise, and it'll be a reading tomorrow in the extraordinary form, talks about Caesar and God, that there is a distinction between um, what we would call the religious order and the secular order, the state, but they're supposed to work together for the good of the people being served. If you ever have a chance to go to Rome, probably some of you have already been to Rome. The architects, especially during the Renaissance, would teach Catholic understandings by where they placed things. So if you walk into the vestibule area of St. Peter's, if you look to your right, you'll see the statue of Constantine. If you look to your left, you'll see the statue of Charlemagne. If you go over to St. John Lateran, the Archbasilica and the Cathedral of Rome, you'll see Constantine out there in one of the areas on the other side. You'll see one of the kings of France, Philip. If you go over to St. Mary Major, you'll see King Henry out there in the vestibule. Why were they putting uh, civil leaders in a vestibule? to symbolize what the idea was of the relationship between church and state. The civil leaders weren't outside in the square, but they also weren't inside the actual church itself. They were in that area which is kind of in between to symbolize that the relationship that the church was uh, communicating, it's not a 21st century American Civil Liberties Union notion of a strict separation between church and state, but it was also not a theocracy in which church and state were the same. Now this was being done even when there were papal city-states, right, in which the Pope also was a civil leader in a very, very concrete way. He remains a civil leader as the head of the Holy See, but it's a different nature of a civil order. But there is a distinction between what we owe to the civil order and what we owe to God, we are made in the image of God, so we owe him everything. But Jesus permits, clearly, that there's a distinct order at the service of people that the church is supposed to help. Brief history of Holy See diplomacy. The church, as you know, was illegal up until that Battle of the Milvian Bridge, October 28, 312, and the next year, Constantine thanked the Christian God who delivered him the western half of the Roman Empire. Uh, wanted to thank that Christian God, and the Christian said, well, it would be good if we were no longer able to be killed for being Christian. And so he published an edict making Christianity legal. Didn't become the official religion of the empire until later in the fourth century. Um, but with the Edict of Milan, we now started to have above the surface interactions between the Pope and civil leadership. We call the Holy See, or Sancta Sedes, um, 
this is the term to refer to the international juridical personality of the Pope and the Pope's immediate collaborators. Sancta Sedes means a holy cheer because a cheer in the ancient world was a symbol of authority. You probably know from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went up the mountain, sat down, and began to teach. In the ancient classrooms, the teacher sat and all the students stood as they took notes. It's exactly the opposite now. It shows what's wrong with the world. No, but, like, it's a sign of authority. We celebrate every February 22nd the cheer of St. Peter, which, just like a judge today, has a bench or a gavel as signs and symbols of authority. So, in the ancient world, it was a cheer. And so when we call the holy seat or the apostolic seat, that refers to the Pope's authority, both religious and civil, but in international relations, it's the civil that uh, is normally referred to. It's distinct from the Vatican city-state. Vatican, it's just an old Etruscan word from about 500 years before Christ that referred to a prophet or a seer. And somehow there was a prophet in the seer's tomb on the western side of the Tiber River in the place now where St. Peter's Basilica would be. It's not a religious word per se. Um, and that area was called the Vatican throughout the centuries for that reason. But 1929, there was a concordat made between Italy and the Holy See, officially creating the Vatican city-state, which is distinct but connected to the Holy See. So the Holy See, engages in all the international relations for the Pope. Vatican city-state would be part of certain treaties like telephone treaties, postal treaties, etc. because the Vatican city-state has those functions whereas the Holy See does not. There, over the course of time, um, we've seen in history, not just with the Holy See, that you can have the existence of a state without any geography corresponding to it. Try to find Poland on a map between 1815 and 1918, and you won't be able to find it. Even though the Polish nation existed, the culture existed, etc., because of the vicissitudes of European history, it was wiped off the map. The Holy See was wiped off the map between 1870 with the reunification of Italy by Garibaldi, etc., and 1929. But the Holy See continued, and there was an explosion of diplomatic relations, the bilateral relations that I had mentioned to you before, because states around the globe wanted to say they still recognized that the Holy See existed, even though Italy had suppressed any geography pertaining to that state. Distinct from the Catholic Church, so the Holy See uh, tries to bring Catholic values to everything we do. It's the, the Holy See's the Pope and the Roman Curia with them and the diplomatic corps around the world. Not every Catholic is a member of the Holy See, but the members of the Holy See are all Catholic. Um, in the early days, we had a few different terms for the ambassadors that would be sent out. The first was in Greek, word for emissary, apocrisarius was that term. Some of the most famous popes of all time were Apocrisarii. Leo the Great, Gregory the Great in particular was the Apocrisarius to, to, to Byzantium. And 
that's where it started. The Pope would send out representatives, especially to councils convened by the emperor. Legati or legates would be another term that was often used. And the term that is still used today is nuncius. Annuncio vobis gaudium manium. It's a messenger bringing a message from somebody else. And so we still call our ambassador class nuncius. Over the course of time, the church, somewhat by default, took on a much larger civil jurisdiction. The reason is because the Roman Empire started to crumble. Famous scene in the time of Pope Leo the Great, 440 to 461. In 451 into 52, Attila the Hun was coming and destroying all the garrisons in North and Central Italy. And the Roman Senate, which still existed at the time, but were a bunch of empty togas, they <laughs> went to Leo and said, could you save the city? Because nobody's really going to respect us. And Leo went with a few of them up to Mantua, which was famous because that's where Pope St. Pius X was a bishop uh, when he, when he, before he went to Venice and then to Rome. Mantua met him in a tent, Attila the Hun came out of the tent and he said, we're going north. What happened inside that tent? Leo had offered to pay a tribute. We'll pay you taxes, essentially, if you leave Rome standing. But everybody else, so moved at what the Pope was able to accomplish, said that when they were in the tent, Peter and Paul came down from heaven. Paul with the sword, Peter with the a knife with which he had cut off Malchus's ear and saying, if you're going to go through Leo, you're going to have to go through us first until a quaked, his knees buckled, and then he ran away. If you ever go to St. Peter's Basilica, you'll see the largest marble sculpture there over Leo the Great's tomb depicting that legend of what really happened when Leo met Attila. But the historical fact was the civil order came to Leo and said, we can't do it, can you do it? Can you use your authority? And he did, and it started to grow because somebody had to make sure that running water um, was coming to Rome. Somebody needed to make sure that trash was being taken out. Somebody had to bring an order, and when the civil order collapsed, almost by vacuum, the Holy See began to fill it, and so it, 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 it grew over the course of time. Pope Gregory VII in the 11th century started to make some very important distinctions uh, between religious and civil authority, especially in the selection of bishops, which many of the local feudal kings wanted to do. And Gregory was starting to take that back because they were passing it out as political graft and not really caring the types of people who would be in place in the office. Modern diplomacy as we would know it today began in the 13th century by what we would now call consuls. So the various city-states to promote their economic goods and everything else started to send these economic representatives from one city-state to the next. And that's where, when the Pope started to do exactly the same thing for the papal city-states and the system of now sending personal representatives to other places really began then. As we continue a little bit with the history, in, at the time of the discovery of the New World, 
Holy See diplomacy took on a much larger emphasis so that there wouldn't be wars, for example, between Portugal and Spain and Europe. These countries um, needed somebody to say what would be a just split, basically, of Latin America. And they went to the popes, and the popes were not the most illustrious popes of all time, but they were trusted to make an impartial judgment. And so they would come, and that's a huge thing. People still come to the Holy See and ask us to mediate in situations where they can't do it themselves because of historical animosity. So we've done it between Chile and Argentina. We have done it between Cuba and the United States far more recently. There are many other examples there too. And we are very grateful to have the opportunity to be able to prevent war by helping people who can't talk to each other directly have some other means to do it. Even the Venezuelan government tried to get us in. And we were willing to do it if we could get them to commit, to, especially the, the government of Maduro, to commit to the peaceful outcome rather than just use it as a show and the Maduro government didn't want to do that. After the Protestant Reformation, something big happened. Prior to the Protestant Reformation, if you wanted to know who was the papal representative in a particular place in Europe, for example, he would be represented by a bishop that he had at least approved of the bishop's election and ordination, if not outright appointed him. After the Protestant Reformation, you would have these swaths of territory that were no longer Catholic. And so what would be the relationship between that state and the pope? And so there started to be exchanges of ambassadors who would be civil representatives rather than religious. We had a few different treaties that came up over the course of time to try to keep Protestants and Catholics from fighting against each other. The French Revolution, and particularly Napoleon, brought about a massive shift in what we would call international law or diplomatic law, because the customs at the time, Napoleon just thought he could run roughshod over. So if there were diplomatic mail, the mail was Napoleon's. If, you're, if there's something like diplomatic immunity, he was going to even kidnap heads of state, like he did with the Pope, and bring them to the French Riviera as a prisoner. So after Napoleon, in 1815, there was a council in Vienna, Austria, to codify and get the countries of the world all to say, we're going to abide by these um, mutual commitments. And so what started in 1815 has been renewed in a few different occasions, but very important in international relations. One of the aspects of the Council of Vienna in 1815, which is, I think, interesting for Catholics to know, is they said that if a country doesn't want to create another system for who would be the dean or the head of the diplomatic corps of all the sort of diplomats assigned to represent their respective countries in a country, that that would be the Holy See. So in half the countries of the world, the Holy See is the dean of the diplomatic corps. And so that means the Holy See representative is the one on behalf of all the diplomats assigned to the country from whatever countries they come from. He's the one who addresses the president or the prime minister or the king or the queen. And he's the one who receives the message from the king to distribute to the diplomatic corps. It means that every time there's a new 
ambassador sent from any country, the reception is normally held at the Holy See's nunciature. Every time there's a going away party, it's normally held at the Holy See's nunciature. And so we have a massively disproportionate influence. And you see it at the UN. The UN in a lot of countries will have their former foreign minister become the uh, ambassador to the UN, the permanent representative to the UN. But wherever they were, especially as the diplomats move around every few years from country to country, they would have all been in countries where the Holy See was the dean of the diplomatic corps. So they have really developed an appreciation for what Holy See diplomacy is able to do to form those friendships, everything else. So it allows us to be much more effective because of that condition placed in 1815 by the Council of Vienna. I've already mentioned a little bit this period between 1870 and 1929 before the Lateran Pact, but that was a time of explosive bilateral relations of the Holy See when we no longer had geographical personality, we still had the international juridical personality. And then with the world wars, in order to prevent another one, there was a real growth of multilateral diplomacy. What the countries of the world grasped, and especially the real leaders, is you just can't have two bellicose nations trying to settle it on their own diplomatically. A lot of the times they're gonna take arms. So would there be a forum in which people could come and fight it out with words so that blood wouldn't have to be shed? And so they started with the League of Nations. Anybody know why the League of Nations failed? Yeah, so it was a huge project of President Woodrow Wilson, but the Senate um, refused to ratify, as you just heard, and it failed. There were other endemic issues with the League of Nations. It was bound to fail within, but the idea of some international body to be able to settle disputes amicably and multilaterally stuck around. And really in 1942, 1943, three countries were starting to prepare for what would happen after World War II. So it was the UK, it was the USSR, and it was the USA. The leaders and the diplomats were saying, we've got to have something afterward. They started to call it the United Nations and started to prepare for that. At this same time, they were asking Pope Pius XII, who was a consummate diplomat in his own right. He was the former nuncio to Germany when Hitler rose to power, and he tried to prevent it. Hitler's opposing candidate actually was a Monsignor Ludwig Kass, an interesting sort of note in, in world history. But um, they were asking Pius XII to promote this project because the Holy See was all over the place, trying to get countries that might be reluctant to join this organization to do so, especially after the failure within their lifetime of the League of Nations, et cetera. And Pius XII said, like, very important for us to have an organization, but as the schema, schema was coming on out for the United Nations, he expressed, two major concerns. He said, you can't have an organization that purports to the equality of nations if five countries are gonna be palpably unequal. And what he was talking about were the, what we would now describe as the five permanent members of the Security Council. The three countries I already mentioned to you, China, which was not the communist China that we have now, as well as France. Those were the five that would have a permanent veto it would be an unfair conversation if that were the case. And his concern has been validated over the last 76 years in the UN for sure. Second thing he said is if the General Assembly of the United Nations 
had no teeth behind any of its resolutions, but it would all be implemented solely and exclusively by the national governments if they choose to, that the United Nations General Assembly would just become the world's most prestigious debating society. And that, likewise, has come true. Pope Francis, when he came in 2015, that's when I was brought in there to help organize his visit initially, he used one of his classic phrases, declarationalist nominalism, <laughs> in order to describe what happens often at the UN, that you've just got statement after statement, statement after statement, but no real consequence on the ground. And so those two things were very presciently recognized by Pope Pius XII as the idea of the United Nations was being formed. The Holy See now has bilateral relations with 183 countries, which is the second most in the world to the United States. Think about that for a second. So there are 193 countries in the United Nations. There are a few countries that exist, like Kosovo, for example, like the state of Palestine, that haven't been granted international recognition because one of the P5, for whatever reason, wants to veto them so that they can't get this status. But most people will say that there are 197 countries in the world, and we have diplomatic relations with almost all of them. Those with whom we don't have diplomatic relations is not on our end, it's on their end. Several Muslim countries, let's just say Saudi Arabia for one, doesn't want to have relations with what they consider a religious state that's not is Islamic. Um, and they don't know enough about history to recognize that We've got the oldest diplomatic corps in the world, and that we do have international juridical personality. But there are a handful like it. We don't have diplomatic relations with China, though we do have it with Taiwan. But there are 14 that we don't. But a massive footprint all over the world. Uh, we likewise have diplomatic relations with the EU, the sovereign military order of Malta, and what we call a special nature with the state of Palestine uh, in order to recognize that publicly without stepping on the toes of the order. We participate in various intergovernmental organizations, bodies, international programs, etc. The Vatican City State has all of these concordats. You don't have to get lost in the details. What are our goals of engagement? We're not concerned with what most states are concerned with, which are economic, military, borders, the rest of it. That's not our goal. Our goal is to articulate the ethical principles that should govern the way we relate to each other as individuals and as groups, as nations. The, what ought to underpin the social and political order on the basis of universally applicable principles that we'll say are as real as the physical elements of the natural environment. There are truths about who we are as person, our social nature, how we interact. There are right and wrong, and we engage at that level. And many are very grateful for it, because if you listen to the interventions that normally happen at the UN, most of them, um, most of them are pretty superficial, just geared toward economic and military advantages. Very few will ever get beyond it to the principles at play. And if somebody wants to do it, it's just a little bit of virtue signaling. We come with a 2,000 year philosophy behind it that people really appreciate when they want an argument to be made in a, in a universal way, they're always happy to get together with the Holy See. 
Those who, of course, don't like the principles that we're articulating, for example, the right to life, don't like it when we speak that clearly, but that's, that's the reality. I already mentioned the initial concerns of Pope Pius XII. One of the things for which um, it's fitting that the Holy See is present is when you look at the original charter of the UN, there's a huge overlap in the charter with Catholic social teaching. Does anybody know what the pillars of the charter of the UN would be? If, the, if you were founding an international organization, what would be the real goals you would be trying to achieve? Peace. Peace, first principle of the charter. They phrase it to prevent the scourge of war, which is twice in our lifetime, destroyed the planet, but it's peace uh, against the scourge of war. What other things would an international organization need really to be committed to promoting? Education is part of something much bigger. Well, okay, so both of these are aspects of what we would call development, right? So it describes lifting the poor out of poverty and promoting development. And the church understands development, the UN understands development in three ways economic, environmental, and social. We likewise look at it as human and cultural. And that's what we call integral human development, which is a term we use a lot. Um, especially at this time when we're coming up to the COP26 conference in Glasgow, following up on the Paris Accords and all that we're caring for for our common home, Pope Francis Laudato Si', the rest of it. It's important that the, that the church recognize that development's not merely economic and not merely environmental. It's got to really get to who we are, and so education's obviously key in human development. Oh, so, sorry, um, other principles? So we've got development, we've got peace. Human rights. Bingo, so human rights and the dignity for which it flows. The fourth, very few get, and the UN sometimes forgets it for obvious reasons. No, um, that would be part of human rights. But the fourth is, keeping your word, <laughs> right? If you sign an international treaty, if you sign on to a resolution, you've gotta be good to your word. And when we look at these four, the church has sought to be peacemakers from the fifth beatitude, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called children of God. Christ came, my peace, I give you my peace, I leave you. There's going to be division on account of him, as we heard on that daily mass a couple days ago. Not that he wants to cause division, but when people serve God first, division ensues when people are jealous that God's got his proper place. But we've always been about peace, human rights, even though the term human rights comes from the Enlightenment, we've been promoting human dignity for two millennia to establish conditions under which justice and respect for obligations arising from treaties and other sorts of international law can be maintained, even in the fifth century, the church's apocrisarii, we're talking about the principle of pacta sunt servanda, the treaties that accords need to be maintained, need to be kept. And fourth, to promote social progress and better standards of life and larger freedom development. The church, through her many institutions, um, have been trying to lift up the poor, who we will always have with us from the time Christ gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
1945, when the UN was founded, 51 countries signed up. They didn't allow any of the Axis countries to sign it up. They wanted to punish them. But they wanted people to pay attention to it so that its decisions, its deliberations would be more consequential. So they allowed other groups to come in. Um, the Holy See was regularly invited by the Secretary General to participate in anything about which we would be experts. So for example, when they were having the initial days of the International um, uh, Atomic Energy Commission, they really wanted our moral principles to guide those discussions, rather than to just have the scientists do it on scientific principles. With the huge refugee crisis after World War II, they wanted the church with all our institutions to participate very much in those international groups. So they were constantly inviting us in, but we were not uh, any type of member at the UN until 1964. I'm just giving you a little bit of history. There was an auxiliary bishop in uh, New York, Bishop James Griffiths, who more or less was a proto-nuncio. He was like our permanent observer now at the UN where he had the UN pass, he could sit in whatever meetings he wanted, and he was writing regular reports back so that the Holy See would be informed what was taking place, and any time they needed to hear from the Holy See, the Holy See would send over remarks for Bishop Griffiths to give. In 1964, though, things changed. Utan, who was the Secretary General at the time, and it was about 20 years into the UN, recognized that the reputation of the UN had really taken a serious hit. It hadn't accomplished all that much in 20 years. And there were a lot of people saying, waste of time, waste of money. Let's just call it a failure. And so Utant asked Pope Paul VI if he would be willing to give an international pep talk about the United Nations. Paul VI agreed. They thought it would not make sense for the Pope to come and address the United Nations General Assembly unless the Holy See had some type of relationship with the United Nations. So that's when there was the push for the Holy See to become a permanent observer state at the UN. I mentioned to you that the other countries beyond the 51, some of them came and listened to all the deliberations, etc. They were permanent observer states. At any given time, we had 16 of these who would eventually give up their permanent observer status and become full members. There's nothing in the UN Charter about permanent observer states. They made it up as they went along, borrowing terminology from other international organizations. But the Holy See was encouraged to become one of these. And on April 6, 1964, we did. And the conditions of being a permanent observer were we could do anything any member state did with three exceptions. We couldn't vote. But most of the resolutions, for example, at the General Assembly, all of the details are worked out in negotiations, which we could participate in 100% and do. So when the resolutions eventually get to a vote in the General Assembly, they will vote by acclamation to accept 60 or 100 all at the same time. No debate taking place because that happened at the negotiation stage. So no big loss there. We couldn't run for office, not that the Pope would ever try to run to be Secretary General <laughs> or something. Um, and that we, um, we couldn't be the initial sponsor, what we would call table a resolution. But in order for any resolution to pass, you'd need at least 97 states now to agree to it. One of the other 97 could do it. So no big loss there. Um, 
we became a permanent observer state in 1964. All these other guys became permanent member states, such that in 2002, when Switzerland became a permanent member, the Secretary General came to the OEC and said, do you want now to become a permanent member as well? And John Paul II, whose feast day, as you know, was yesterday, um, he took about a year and a half to deliberate um, whether he wanted the Holy See to become a permanent member. At the end of a year and a half in 2004, he said, we'd prefer to remain a permanent observer state, but would like to have everything officially put in writing about our rights and responsibilities so that it would be more than custom. There were groups like Catholics for Free Choice, if you've ever heard of that infernal organization, um, that was trying to get the Holy See booted <coughs> from the United Nations because all we do is we stop progress, because we stop the bulldozers from pushing abortion, especially in the developing world, etc. And so the UN agreed to formally define the rights and the responsibilities of a permanent observer state, and that's what happened July 1st, 2004. Um, why did St. John Paul II decide to remain a permanent observer state? He wanted us to remain at that level of giving principles that the world needs and not to have to make decisions and vote on things like war. Some people will say, well, why couldn't you just become a member state and then abstain from everything? Imagine if there's something against child abuse and the Holy See abstains. Something against the trafficking of women and the Holy See abstains. If the Holy See votes on some but doesn't vote on others, everybody's going to be trying to read too much in. It's much better for us to do what we had been doing up until that point as a permanent observer state. Okay. If you want to see kind of the Holy See's approach to the United Nations, the easiest place to look is the five papal visits to the United Nations. The popes have spoken to the General Assembly now six times because two years ago at the beginning of COVID, Pope Francis gave a virtual address to the, uh, to the United Nations. And so they've spoken six times, but I'll talk about the five physical visits. Paul VI came in 1965 at the request of Utand. John Paul II came twice, 1979, 1995. Pope Benedict, sorry, this is 2008, um, came. <laughs> and Pope Francis came in 2015. They've stressed various themes in their visit. I'm going to go through them briefly before I get to your questions. First one is esteem for the institution. They've basically said that if the UN didn't exist, it would have to be founded. We could just see some words here. Paul VI, moral and solemn ratification of this lofty institution that must never collapse, but it must be continually perfected and adapted to the needs that the history of the world will present. John Paul, 50 years after its founding, the need for such an organization is even more obvious. That was in 1995 when he came for the celebration of the 50th anniversary. Pope Benedict XVI, my presence is a sign of esteem. It's intended to express the hope that the organization will increasingly serve as a sign of unity among states and an instrument of service to the entire human family. Pope Francis likewise said, I can only reiterate the appreciation expressed by my predecessor in reaffirming the importance that the Catholic Church attaches to this institution and the hope that she plays in activity. So first thing that the popes have always stressed is esteem for the institution. Next, they've said that it's an institution, however, always in need of reform. That it's not living up to the hopes that the peoples of the world, especially those who are desperate, those who are having their rights violated, look 
for the UN to deliver. JP2, this organization needs to rise more and more above the cold status of an administrative institution and become a true moral center. What values is it exporting to the world? Pope Francis, the experience, he came for the 70th anniversary in 2015, the experience of the past seven years made it clear that the reform and adaptation of the times is always necessary. There's a need for greater equity, he stresses. And then he goes on, the experience of these 70 years, especially the first 15 years of the third millennium, reveal both the effectiveness of the full application of international norms and the ineffectiveness of their lack of enforcement. So they're all highlighting various ways that the UN is in perpetual need of reform. A beautiful thought by Paul VI when he came. Paul VI was likewise a diplomat. He was the Secretary of State before he was elected Pope. Um, he said, we'd be tempted to say that your chief characteristic, he's saying this to the Secretary General and to all the member states, is a reflection, as it were, in the temporal field of what our Catholic Church aspires to be in the spiritual field, unique and universal. Your vocation is to make brothers, not only of some, but of all people. But the United Nations is the only civil institution that purports to do what the Catholic Church has always tried to do, to serve all people everywhere. And so, incredibly important for us to be there. Some people joke around the UN that we're the third biggest state in the world, even though we're the smallest geographically, because you've got China with 1.3 billion people, you've got India with almost now 1.2 billion, and you've got Catholics <laughs> who are over a billion, right? But we, unlike those other two countries, we actually have a footprint all across the globe, and so we're able to help the UN learn how to serve all people everywhere and not just cave in to might makes right in the will of the stronger countries. UN is essential to stress for the building and preservation of peace and is meant to be a school of peace. Again, Paul VI. Was it not principally for this purpose that the UN came into being against war and for peace? Paul VI. The UN is a great school where education in the way of peace is imparted. Everyone taking his place here becomes a pupil and also a teacher in the art of building peace. So everyone who goes there is meant to learn what it means to make and build peace and then as a student leave there as a peacemaker, as a teacher, as a professor of peace, as an artisan would be what other popes have used. And that, that does work, actually, at the UN, when you begin to listen to people from all over the world in the same place, see what the real needs are, see what the objections are. Um, people are able to go on out and care for the needs better if they actually have that will. Carry out this mission of peace, it must help nations in the international community to live up to the responsibility to protect. This is something that the church has championed in 2005. It, um, it there was a, International Congress held at the United Nations on what we call the responsibility to protect. Has anybody heard of this expression before in international law, the responsibility to protect? Okay, probably all of you have heard of just war, right? So what's just war? That there are two basic things. There can be criteria that make it just for you to declare war, and then there are categories for you to fight war justly. 
ad bellum and in bellum criteria. The reason was because over the course of history, a lot of people engaged in unjust wars. And so just war theory was to stop people fighting wars that shouldn't be fought and fighting in ways that should never be employed. The responsibility to protect is almost the reverse of that, where we're dealing with a world that when atrocity crimes are happening, genocides, most of the international community just takes out Pontius Pilate's bowl and washes their hands of the situation. The responsibility to protect says that in circumstances when a populace is suffering atrocity crimes and its government is either the one doing it or can't stop it. For example, if you go to Nigeria and the Fulani herdsmen are going out to destroy Christians all over the place, if the government for whatever doesn't want to or can't defend the people who are being massacred, that regional governments, that the international community has a responsibility to intervene, despite state sovereignty, that the protecting people from atrocity crimes uh, leads to a universal jurisdiction for people to be able to intervene. The reason why this had to be enunciated was because most people do sit on the sidelines and allow people to be destroyed. Pope Benedict, when he came in 2008 for his address, he spent over half of it trying to drive down this principle of the responsibility to protect. You need to have renewed emphasis on this principle. If states are unable to guarantee such protection, the international community must intervene with the juridical means provided in the UN Charter and other international instruments like the one signed in 2005. Hugely important today because um, we've got 50 ongoing conflicts and a lot of cases that are being carried out by their own government, especially against religious minorities and the rest. And, um, and the UN and the member states of the UN put out some nice, sweet-sounding documents condemning the violence that the innocents are suffering, but they don't want to really put their troops on the line. What's happening in Haiti today, if you follow the news in Haiti? Just massive lawlessness occurring, and it's being done by gangs that even assassinated the president a few months ago. <coughs> what was the situation prior? Situation prior, there was a UN group there, but... The U.S. doesn't want to send its troops in as U.N. peacekeepers. Neither really does France, though France doesn't mourn. Neither does the U.K., neither does the U.S.S.R. So who are the troops that go in there? The extraordinary army from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. <laughs> or the Sri Lankans. Or the Bangladeshis. With no uniform code of military justice, for example, for those who would know here. No capacity to prosecute people in court-martial. And so what happened? Total chaos. And the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa sisters, have got to get people to sleep in their doors at night because these soldiers just want to go rape the religious sisters as they do. Lawlessness that happens because the countries with real militaries don't want to get involved in potentially losing any of their own lives to protect other lives from true atrocity, atrocity crimes. And so we do it to un very, very poorly trained troops from other countries that can often cause worse problems than keep order. Responsibility protect, super important. There's a need for true justice, not just words. 
Pope Francis, our world demands of all government leaders a will that is effective, practical, and constant if, it's, if there's really going to be justice. We must avoid every temptation to fall into a declarationalist nominalism, just virtue signaling in our statements that would assuage our consciences. We need to ensure that our institutions are truly effective in the struggle against all these various scourges. Promoting and protecting human dignity necessarily involves promoting and protecting respect for the sacredness of human life. We've always stressed this every visit that's come, and this is one of our principal works at a time in which the culture of death is very potent. Prior to this visit, like so the, the way speeches are done is like, um, for major papal visits, you'll always give talking points, and the people over there will put them together. For some of Pope Francis's um, speeches at the UN, they'll be written by somebody in his room, which is a great privilege. But, um, but for this one, 2015, we just said, listen, we're constantly being criticized as if we haven't gotten your memo that the church is no longer pro-life because everybody was saying, from who am I to judge and everything else like this, that the Pope just has de-emphasized the prayer and abortion. So we said, please put in one strong reference to the church's pro-life mission. Pope Francis read the memo, and he put four in the speech so that nobody would ever be able to say that we're not working with him to defend human life. And on, on the words with regard to abortion, nobody's ever spoken like Pope Francis. He keeps talking about hiring hitmen, and that's what abortion is. You hire a, an assassin to kill innocent human life. How could that be a decision? But Francis talked about the foundations of a right understanding of universal fraternity and respect for the sacredness of every human life, that you can't build other human rights if you're able to end the lives and all the rights of those who are younger, totally vulnerable, with no voice. Pope Francis spoke about the reform of the United Nations in his encyclical of a year ago for Tutti. I'm going to skip over this, but for the most part, talking about the ways that it needs to be improved. Um, this is a little bit about the structure of how we represent the Holy Father and the Church's mission there. It's always led by a permanent observer, and we've had seven. This is now Archbishop Gabriele Caccia, who's from Milan. Uh, for those of you who love John Paul II, he ran his funeral, for example, when he was the number three guy at the Secretary of State over in the Vatican. Bernadito Alza, a Filipino who I worked with for five years now, the Nuncio of Spain. Um, some perennial and present priorities before we get to your questions. Peace always, and there are various flavors that this takes. One of the things that we're very much involved in now is the prevention of nuclear weapons because there's an ethos under nuclear weapons, which is we can't trust each other and it's mutually assured destruction. And that whole ethos corrodes the possibility of real fraternity. In the same way if two people with loaded guns kept them pointed at each other's temples and said, can we be friends? <laughs> it's not really consistent. Fundamental human rights. Human rights, that term is now being used inappropriately to push for lots of things that were not in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and that go absolutely in contradiction to the rights that were defined there. So the right to love someone you choose, which is a push for same-sex marriage, for example, um, 
eliminates the right to religious freedom because it's religious groups that oppose that changing of the definition of marriage. I could give lots of examples of this. But Pope Francis calls them the novel rights of the 1960s <laughs> that are starting to crowd out the rights that have always been identified. So we've got a lot of work to do here, and it's a constant fight. Rights of women versus the rights, right to life, for example, because they're put in contraposition. Development seeking to lift the poor out of poverty. We're doing a lot of that work in development. Freedom, especially religious freedom, and freedom of conscience. One of the reasons why people don't want to acknowledge freedom of conscience is to say you have a conscience means to say you have an inner organ of sensitivity that listens to God. And the seculars who want to live, as Pope Benedict used to say, etsi deus non deretur, is if God, were, God didn't exist, they hate that there can be some authority beyond the state. And so there's a lot of trampling on the right to freedom of conscience which leads to the trampling of the right to religious freedom. Intercultural dialogue, fraternity and social friendship, we recognize it. We've got to have interreligious dialogue because we teach warring partisans in various countries how to work together even when you disagree about the most important things of all. Support for democratic institutions, which are most in alignment with true anthropology, that God has given us the capacity for responsibility and freedom. Care for migrants and refugees, huge, when you've got so many on the move and being trampled, having their rights trampled. We see it down at the Texas-Mexican um, border, how many human traffickers, for example, poises the coyotes and then uh, do just execrable things to the women that they put in the back of their 18-wheelers uh, to smuggle them across the border and then just drop them into these cities. I mean, it's just incredible the evil that flows from a failure to, um, to welcome. Pope Francis has spoken out quite a bit about this. And it's something that Catholics have got to be great at. There are lots of different sort of political considerations that we can add to the conversation. But ultimately, Jesus meant it when he said, I was a stranger and you either welcomed me or stiffed me. Heaven and hell depends on how we welcome, promote, and integrate strangers. Care for our common home, huge emphasis, which is, if you've read Laudato Si of Pope Francis, Laudato Si is a, an allegory. It's an allegory for the way we're supposed to care for each other by caring for our common home. And you know, Pope Francis there will say, like, we spend a lot of time caring for endangered species. What about endangered humans? There's this whole movement against genetically modified organisms. Well, what about the human genome? And he'll constantly give these analogs throughout Laudato Si. Why? Because that is something, especially the young across the world, they're very much interested in environmental issues. And Pope Francis was trying to engage them on those terms and get them to take those seeds and have them flourish in ways that we're caring not just for our common home, but our roommates in that common home. I finish here. Pope Francis, in The Joy of the Gospel, stressed that the kerygma, so this proclamation of Jesus' incarnation, his 
life, his passion, his death, his resurrection, has a clear social content. That it's not just about a relationship between Jesus and an individual believer. Why? Because Jesus said, love one another just as I have loved you. Love your neighbor. He's given the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's given the parable of the separating of the sheep and the goats at the general resurrection, which is all about the way that we care for others. Is a clear social content. Our redemption has a social dimension because God in Christ redeems not just individuals, but also their social relation. Here's a quotation. Reading the scriptures makes it clear that the gospel is not merely about our personal relationship with God, nor should our loving response to God be seen simply as an accumulation of small personal gestures to individuals in need, a kind of charity a la carte, or a series of acts aimed solely at easing our conscience. This is cafeteria Catholicism at an ethical level. The gospel is about the kingdom of God. It's about loving God who reigns in the world. To the extent that he reigns within us, the life of society will be a setting for universal fraternity, justice, peace, and dignity. Both Christian preaching and life, then, are meant to have an impact on society. True Christian hope always generates history. We Christians, as salt, light, and leaven, change history. These are the convictions that undergird the international diplomatic work of the Holy See. Part of the church is seeking to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and the leaven that raises the whole world up. We've gone a little too fast, and you want um, these slides or want to study them in any way, you just go to catholicpreaching.com, which is where the talks will be uploaded and various other articles and things that I do. So we have some time for your questions. Please, yeah. So I have many questions. Now, I just want to clear up what the implication of that was. Does this mean that the, the church um, in, in the UN uh, advocates for more open borders policies, or are you more referring to the shutdown of the trafficking operations? So um, we're doing both, and we're doing more than that. So like, let's just define open. What does open mean? Open does not mean you can't have laws regulating it. Open means that you've got some capacity to welcome those who are coming on in. Different states are going to have different capacities. But you know, I remember once two Polish guys came up to me after one of the talks in which this was a small little part of it and just said, like, but you know, what about Muslims? Like they have a totally different idea of how to organize society. The last thing we want in Poland is Sharia law. I said, I understand your fear. My question is, does Poland have room for one Muslim? And the person paused. And I said, because like, we're not saying you've got to take in a million or 10 million, but right now you've got a, an absolute xenophobic, frankly, opposition, no matter how much this person's suffering and Jesus died for that person too, do you have room for one? Because once you crack the principle that no, we don't want certain others coming on in, then you can work out the practical details. And so did Germany take in too many? Yes. They 
took in too many that they could absorb quickly enough, and it led to a ghettoization, everything else like that, and Pope Francis himself acknowledged that publicly. So what the, what the political realities, how, what the process is, what the weight is gonna be, um, what, the, what the conditions are gonna be, all of those can be worked out. But there has to be an openness. So then, quick, quick, just quick follow-up. So then, to summarize, the principle would then be be open to the maximum amount by which your country is able to assimilate, shall we say, or able to care for. Yes, knowing that that decision is going to be made politically in the country, and so you can't lob in a principle that I think for your country that means this number. Okay. But it's got to start with some openness to people who are suffering coming on in. And that's what the Holy Father's trying to do in, the, in making the hearts open to the whole world. We worked very hard on the Global Compact for Migration. And you know, there, there were certain things in there that should be easy to do. Like what, there are kids today who when they're migrants and go into a migrant camp, the average weight in a migrant camp to get out is 18 years. Just imagine you're three years old and because of some environmental thing in your country, because of war in your country, because of economic deprivation, whatever else, you're brought over and you spend from three to 21 in a migrant camp. Do you think that that's gonna impact your life? Absolutely it's gonna impact your life. Do you think any of these kids locked in cages in McLaren, Texas, that they're gonna have any traumatic experience from that? No question. You know, we've gotta put ourselves, not just in these kids' shoes, but in their cages. Would we ever want anybody we care about in a circumstance like that? So the question, like when I was a baby priest, what would always get the calls for crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, was when I talked about the indissolubility of marriage. There'd always be people waiting to ambush me afterward, no matter how tender I had en enveloped the message, who were divorced and remarried and thought that I was sort of giving a blade right to their heart by um, using the gospel of that Sunday. Second half was all about immigration. I ran the diocesan newspaper for the Diocese of Fall River for many years. And no matter how, um, how you handle the question, with all the nuances that you need to for right and left, at the end of the day, it comes down to, would we treat Jesus that way? Would we treat Mary and Joseph that way, who are likewise migrants? Would we treat a family member that way? And if we wouldn't do it to them, then why would we do it to somebody else? And again, that doesn't mean you can't have processes. That doesn't mean you can't have quotas and limits. Um, that doesn't mean you can't have firm borders so that people, including terrorists, just can't walk over. All of that's fear game, but it starts with a welcoming heart. That's not just my teaching. That is the teaching of the church that Pope Francis has reiterated quite a bit. Yep. Yeah, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how particularly the Holy See promotes these principles in the UN. Is it just speeches? Do you conversations, how does that work out? Great. So, in many ways, it's a kind of all of the above. So, most of the interaction happens in the debates in which all the countries are giving 
statements and then we're sharing the statements with each other. A lot of it will happen in the negotiations, which are um, like muddy pit fights sometimes, to be honest with you, in which we're really trying to bring those principles in and show how certain of the language that was in the initial drafts are contrary to human dignity, so a lot would happen there. We run a lot of conferences. Prior to COVID, I'd run 25 big conferences a year at the UN in which we'd be able to put a much longer spotlight on a particular issue, human trafficking, migration, the real Catholic response to the Holocaust while it was occurring, um, Down syndrome. I mean, one of my real, um, among my happiest moments were when we were able to have conferences on 321, March 21st, for Trisomy 21 on Downs, and I brought those with Downs into the UN in order to be able to speak. And one girl, or woman, her, uh, Karen Gaffney was her name, came in from Portland. She, you know, is running conferences and fixed time limits, you have to make sure that everybody keeps to their time limit, and if you've given them 12 minutes, they can't go for 20, because bad things can happen for the event, and you're cutting off later speakers and the rest. And so I said, Karen, do you, are you gonna have written remarks and she said no father I've memorized my remarks and I said how long are they she says 11 minutes and 51 seconds <laughs> and um, I said Karen you sure everything yeah, yeah father I'm sure she came and she looked like she was giving it off the cuff because she had really memorized it but there was at one point where we got so much applause at something that she said that she lost her train of thought and you know, I was next to her on the panel and she just looked over to me and she said, Father, I'm so sorry. And then she looked down, she found her place and then she went on autopilot again. But she was just so um, upset that she wasn't keeping her word to me <laughs> about having memorized her old talk. But just to let every, because we talk about making sure we um, care for those with disabilities of any sort, all the, all the, the abortion, of Down's kids across the planet, the real genocide that's taking place that is contrary to everything that the UN stands for and we have an event that shows that by listing everything to try to bring people to conversion. We've had lots of others in which we're able to focus on 90, for 90 minutes or three hours on these talks to try to, uh, to, try to move hearts uh, in particular ways and we've been successful. We did that highly effectively with human trafficking because the problem with human trafficking is you've got so many different agencies all with their own turf. And so they were very happy when the Holy See got involved in it because we internationally can bring everybody together and we have the status to be able to do it. And so um, all of the above. One, one thing that's massively helpful for our work there is that we have the infrastructure of the Catholic Church all over the world. So whenever we wanna focus on things, we bring people in from those countries to be able to speak at what they're doing with regard to education in rural villages of girls who wouldn't be receiving an education in any other way. Or you name the topic, we're able to make sure people see and hear rather than just speak about the people impacted. Another cool event, we were asked um, by an NGO to have an event on Mother Teresa right after a canonization. Now normally, we don't walk into the false, flame, uh, false frame that we're there as a privileged religion rather than a state. And so I said, 
um, if we're going to do it, we're going to bring in some of the people served by Mother Teresa. And we're going to have a meal for them after, and I gave all the conditions which they accepted. And so I do a lot of work with the Missionaries of Charity in New York, and I asked for their four convents, would you, would you be willing to bring 25 in? And we had to get them clothes. We had to get them IDs because you needed IDs, so the city of New York was able to help us with the IDs. I got buses, I got all the rest, but like one of the sisters called and said, Father, I need to ask permission because I've got a guy who's blind, he's deaf, and he's got AIDS. Would we be able to get him in? I said, he's first on Jesus' invitation list and he's first on mine. Of course we can get him in. So they came on in and right behind the ambassadors, all of whom we've got nameplates that state what their country is, I put their, um, I put them uh, right behind it with their name on a plate, digitized, um, that they could see from both sides at the United Nations um, because they're really important in God's eyes. And so we were able to do that and the whole thing came on in, it was 569 people, standing room only, and we're having these various talks on Mother Teresa and peace because she won the Nobel Peace Prize, Mother Teresa, and leaving no one behind, which is a is a interpersonal notion of development, Mother Teresa and human rights, and then we showed the video over an hour and a half in of Mother Teresa in 1986 there talking about the greatest destroyer of peace in the world is abortion. And after everybody had been primed for it, I mean, it was incredible to see certain people um, uncomfortable in their seats from the UN and the whole rest. So, like, we're able to cause some mischief. <laughs> Please. Uh, so you mentioned just war. Yeah. To be criteria to make it justified for them to participate more. Uh, what would you say are the criteria of just war? How can you discern when a war is a just war? So the catechism will describe it very well. But the first is... Um, there's got to be harm, real harm received. It can't be in anticipation that you might receive harm, but it's, it's gotta be trying to remedy a wrong that um, in many cases is ongoing. In one, uh, one, one, it's gotta be declared by the legitimate authority. So does it get declared by the church? It gets cleared, declared by the legitimate authority it's got to be proportion that what you're attempting to do has got to be proportionate to the harm. So it's a little bit of the lex talionis at an international um, principle that if somebody knocks out your eye, you can't kill them. An eye for an eye. So it's got to be proportionate to the harm received. It's got to have um, a good prospect of success. So you just can't do it regardless, but it's gotta have a good prospect of success, and it can't cause greater harm than the one that it is trying to remedy. So those would be the criteria of going to war, and then there would be criteria in the waging of the war, like for example, um, it's gotta be for specific objectives, you can't target indiscriminately citizens, these types of things. Part of that would be you can't drop nuclear bombs. Okay. Uh, so the second war question. Just to add to that before, like, you know, in modern war, there's like drone usage and, you know, going into countries without their permission, espionage, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, on a basic level, you look at that, you think, well, crossing borders illegally, that's wrong. 
uh, enhanced interrogation and torture, that's wrong. Uh, drone warfare seems sketchy. All these things, I mean, like does just war add any light to those situations or is there a different way you have to approach it? So the principles of just war are regularly applied to those considerations. I mean, this isn't a static doctrine, but it's regularly in need of um, updating through application to these new circumstances, and so there are those who do it. The problem today is, to be direct, um, like Pope Francis and Fratelli Tutti gave a cri de coeur against even the just war, saying, can there ever be a just war? The answer to that question, Holy Father, is yes, and there have been many, but like, what he's really trying to say is, same thing with the death penalty, can we get to a culture in which we can get beyond these questions? That's what he's really trying to emphasize. But until we're there, when there's an aggressor coming after you, going after your people, it's the same way if you've got a house and they're coming after your family. Like, there are criteria in which you can defend, and that's what the just war doctrine is all about, a legitimate defense after you have been attacked. And so, in the world that we're living in, it remains, but the application toward the particular issues has to take place. Drones, most people are not gonna be against drones, provided that drones are being used on specific military targets and things like this that there's nothing intrinsically wrong about the use of a drone. Uh, the positive law of um, protection of borders and things like this, um, that would cede if you had a greater, it's not an absolute, it's not intrinsically evil to cross border without permission. That could happen in a circumstance in which there's a legitimate reason for you to be able to do it, perhaps to prevent stuff coming on in. I mean, these types of particulars get worked out. Do you have an opinion on like, just, I guess, the ethics of the modern situation? You know, the British SAS parachutes into Iraq and, and kills five people who may or may not be people they're looking for. You know, that seems to be like what's going on nowadays. And it's hard, I can't really, I don't really know what to make of it because it seems like that's the only thing you can do in some cases. But there's so much risk of people on the ground actually doing that to like, you know, accidentally kill an innocent person. Yeah. So how do you know what it's worth um, You'll never know with metaphysical certainty what the consequences will be. Um, you do the best job that you can with foreseeing the consequences. You're still responsible for the consequences you haven't foreseen, but you try to foresee the consequences and that would come in to the questions of the just war doctrine in terms of is it proportionate and likewise what's its capacity to succeed, will it cause worse damage than it did? Like when we look at, for President Bush in 91, going into Kuwait, worked so hard to try to frame everything with regard to just war doctrine. John Paul II was trying to get Cardinal Pio Laghi to get him not to go, I mean John Paul II was opposed to it, but President Bush, um, the senior, worked very hard on that. Likewise, the justification against Saddam Hussein wasn't done the same way by, um, by the son. But there were many sort of Catholic theologians who tried to make that case because of the atrocity stuff and the responsibility to protect and the rest of it. 
But I think when we look at what has happened after that time period, you can say that has worse harm come to the region because of that invasion than help was brought in. We would never have had ISIS, for example, and all of that had the US not invaded Iraq um, earlier this uh, century. So you, you're not gonna know all of it ahead of time. What can you foresee? What are your presumptions? What are your assumptions? And there has to be, in my opinion, this option for everything else before. So it's gotta really be a last resort circumstance, not a first resort. <coughs> but we're still living in a world in which unfortunately that type of stuff is needed because there's still aggression taking place. Um, so you, um, the right to protect also seems like an idea that's quite interesting. You mentioned that when there's a, an atrocity going on that a, a state is unable or unwilling to prevent, then that the international community has not just a, not just um, a, a right, but a responsibility. Yeah, um, they must go in, right? But what if a member state is a perpetrator of one such act? And the most concrete and well-known example would be the uh, persecution of Uyghur Muslims in China, mm -hmm. right? Um, in, in that case, in what, under what circumstances must the right to protect be invoked? Yeah, thanks. Um, the responsibility to protect is framed in circumstances when countries are either committing the atrocity crimes or incapable or unwilling to stop it. So the Uyghur situation is an application if pr pr uh, of, of a context in which the international community would have uh, responsibility to do something. Now, getting back to what we were just talking about with just war doctrine, would it lead to World War III? if the people were going on in, and if it were to lead to World War III, then you do not do it, because the harm that would come all over the globe would be worse than the terrible evil that's still taking place, which doesn't mean you wash your hands of the circumstances, but that you try to change what's happening through other means. The, like the, the issue with the Uyghurs, for example, is China has economically extorted almost every single Muslim country in the world, so that you never hear a peep at all from Muslims about what China's doing to their fellow Muslims. Incredible. That the people who are speaking out about the Uyghurs are frankly Christians all over the world. And other human rights groups, Amnesty International, etc. But China's been very effective in economically silencing the people who should be regularly speaking on out. When we speak out on the Uyghurs, or when anybody speaks out on the Uyghurs at the, at the United Nations, China is very aggressive in its response. We have had several conferences that have run on international religious freedom. And Senator Brownback, when he was the um, roving ambassador for religious freedom of President Trump, as well as Tom Farr, who runs the Religious Freedom Institute in DC, they both mentioned the Uyghurs um, in their prepared remarks. And the number two Chinese diplomat was present in the room who, in the diplomatic way, came right down to see me and said, China would, if permitted, like to exercise the right to reply, which is something that doesn't pertain to an event, but is typical
protocol in a general assembly discussion, and I said, of course, you can do it just out of fairness. And they took on and they were talking with the typical Chinese line that these are vocational technical training schools. <laughs> and then, and then um, Ambassador Brownback just like, could I speak, Father Landry? And he gets the floor and he just says, I've got various names in front of me people who were in these, what did you call them, vocational technical schools. And he starts going on, Tom Farr does the same thing, but like we made sure that they were heard there. We're bringing a little bit of a light there, um, but it's a delicate circumstance because of what we're dealing with with China and what would happen if this were happening in a place that um, you could stop the harm without potentially getting World War III, then you'd handle it differently than in Western China. But um, that's the that's that's some of the stuff that we have to deal with in the world, where prudence is very very much needed. Uh, but you also need courage at the same time, and sometimes prudence is used as a cover for pusillanimity. Let me see if I formulate this question. Uh, I want to tie this into your, your expertise in bioethics. It seems like in the last 20 years, especially, complicated bioethical problems, I would imagine, are, are taking up more of your time or your, uh, your, your attention throughout the Yeah, so, uh, how, I don't know what the question is, I'd be interested to hear you talk more about that and specifically the, the challenge that you're going to face. I mean, I think most nations would say, yeah, we, we want less war. Yeah, I'm, but I, I don't I think understand. most nations are going to be like, yeah, we want less control over you know, human nations. The, the temptation is so great. Yeah, the, the bioethical stuff that we have to fight isn't particularly complicated in terms of its ethical side, but it like we're, we're fighting against some pretty hard wills out there. So what are the typical bioethical issues? First is life. Second, we're really very much involved now on gender ideology at the UN. Third, we're, we're dealing with the huge problem of surrogacy across the world uh, and its attacks on women's in the way that they become essentially enslaved, and they would never do this if they had economic liberty, but they're desperate and they're being manipulated by richer countries in order to be living wombs for things. In vitro fertilization is in the whole wild west of the fertility industry. That's there uh, at the UN, and people are trying to push that as well as euthanasia and the bigger question. The UN is not the first forum for that. It always um, flows downstream toward the UN from what individual states in different places have done. Um, and except when the Security Council acts to try to prevent something, and when the Security Council passes a resolution it becomes international law, the General Assembly resolution remains just an exhortation basically about the way things ought to be. 
even when the Security Council talks about something, how is it actually going to get enforced? And the bioethical things that would come there would be, uh, again, somewhat clear with regard to making sure that women who are raped and give birth, that the child actually has identity, that the child can get an identity card and not be treated in, in a way um, as stateless, for example. We've got lots of those issues, which I think are pretty much straightforward. We're not on the front lines of bioethical stuff at the, uh, the, the what I would call the burgeoning bioethical issues. We're still very much working on the, the absolutely clear bioethical stuff that uh, people want to pretend um, is ethically otherwise, so especially life. Last two questions. Uh, so you mentioned how the Jeff Hardy can declare by legitimate authority. Yeah. Uh, does the Holy See uh, have, is there any context in which it can be a legitimate authority in declaring or participating in wars? And if yes, uh, when would that be? Today, no. Um, but it used to be the case? When we had the papal city-states, sure. So the, it, it, like, there was a military um, that was part of it and occasionally uh, the Holy See would be involved in little territorial disputes when um, in feudal time periods people were attacking the papal city-states. So we would consider it much more a police force, the gendarmeria, uh, than we would uh, full-scale military. But there was a time with the papal city-states in which that was the case. At a theoretical level, part of the concordat with Italy is that Italy is meant to defend the Vatican City State, um, but if Italy were trying to attack the Vatican City State, you know, you've got the Swiss Guard there, but <laughs> they're not going to scare people away by uniforms, right? I mean, they're, they're, so um, it wouldn't really happen that the Holy See would, uh, would do it. Stalin's old quip in that period between 1870 and 1929 was, how many armies does the Pope have? John Paul II kind of showed him. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, 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 so, okay. so um, you mentioned to a certain extent the difficulties. Um, what are some of the what are some more specific difficulties you have when dealing diplomatically with with countries who have value systems that are relative, that pretty much diametrically opposed to the Holy See, such as many of the Muslim nations, especially those who don't have diplomatic relations with. So at the UN, we're going to interact with everybody. So even though we don't have bilateral relations, sometimes we're seated right next to them. And sometimes we'll collaborate on specific projects. With so we, there is a human nature that most people can recognize. There are various goods that anybody who's ever done apologetic work uh, will recognize that you can find that common ground with others. We always try to seek that. With the Muslim countries, we're doing a lot with them on the family because they recognize, even though they've got a different notion of the nuclear family in which there could be four wives, for example, and the rest, but like they do recognize the importance of the family in international law rather than defining everything as if we're individualized atoms. So the whole social nature, etc. So we're able to work with Muslim countries clearly on that. Most of our allies with regard to life issues would um, 
would be Muslim countries. There's only one Catholic country, Catholic majority country, that's actually with us on pro-life issues at the UN. If you go to Latin America, for example, where many of them are, all their populace is pro-life. Their national governments are pro-life, but their representatives um, in New York are bought off by the very rich um, um, countries of the West. And so, uh, and back home, there's not enough of a price to pay for that type of violation. I mean, we were kind of pleased that Guatemala is wanting very much to be publicly pro-life now, which is gonna be a step in the right direction for us that we'll be able to help. But as soon as they were doing it, they were coming to us, to be honest, to say like, what do we do from here? Because they know we've been fighting this fight much longer. And so how could they be more effective in coming out with their pro-life stuff? So um, this, this will be the last, yeah. Um, so I, you mentioned earlier that you thought the role of the Holy See was to articulate ethical principles. And I was wondering if you saw the role of the Holy See in the UN as just articulating the principles or also advising on how those principles ought to be applied in your particulars. Yeah, and, and it's not just even advising. We, Father Mark, I didn't even see that come on. Um, we're also fighting for it on the ground, right? To make sure that those ethical principles get instantiated in the work of the UN and things that violate those principles are excised. We win a lot of those battles, we lose a lot of those battles, but we just keep fighting because it's not enough to talk about it. We're there in the room where it happens trying to make sure that, as you saw the quotation from Pope Francis, that these ideas actually are effective to prevent the scourges that, um, that attack um, people and attack justice throughout the world. So we're, we're really fighting to make them consequential. Ideas, are, ideas have consequences only when you make them have consequences. And so like, You've got to live by those ideas. You've got to sort of work because the ideas aren't being announced in a vacuum. There are competing interests and the whole rest of it, and we just need to say it more persuasively, sometimes a little bit more loudly and more perseveringly than some of our interlocutors. Okay, thanks everybody for your attention. I wish I could stay a little bit longer. I do have to